So on this podcast, we've talked in the past about improving accessibility in healthcare with the help of technology. And then that conversation normally goes down the path of making sure those in rural and remote Australia can access healthcare. And that's a real big and important issue that's got quite a lot of facets to it. But that's far from the extent of where the conversation needs to go when it comes to healthcare accessibility in Australia. Something that we don't talk about enough in the industry or ecosystem broadly, and on this podcast too, is including people with a disability in healthcare and the reduced levels of access to routine healthcare and rehabilitation available to someone with a disability. So today on the show, I'm joined by Gillian Mason, and in this episode, we're talking about accessibility of healthcare for people with a disability and the role of digital health when it comes to disability inclusion. Guess what? Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech with Peter Birch, a podcast featuring conversations with key players and influencers to promote innovation and collaboration for better healthcare enabled by technology. With me today is Gillian Mason. She's a disabled physiotherapist researcher, patient advocate and science communicator who is passionate about using her 17 years of healthcare experience from both sides of the bedside to transform the way that people's lived experience is valued and included in the design of human-centred, digitally-enabled, accessible healthcare systems. Hey, Gillian, how are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It's great to have you. And look, I'd really love to learn a bit more about you. Can you tell us a bit about you and what you do? Oh, yeah, I'd love to. And I think it's funny that I said I'm well, thank you, because that's something that we say. I'm actually, I've got lots of chronic illnesses, so I'm not actually well. And we put a lot of value on wellness. And of course, healthcare is supposed to be about making people more well and healthy. But Mm. yeah, it says a lot about our values, I guess. Yeah. Wow, there you go, like hitting hitting, hitting the bombs in the first 10 seconds. Wow. (laughs) But tell us about you. So, yeah, I'm a physiotherapist by background. I started working in what we guess we're going to call the wellness healthcare industry as a personal trainer and fitness instructor, actually, while I was at uni. And, yeah, loved using data and measuring people's movement and fitness and, and using that information to set fitness goals with them and ended up in a situation where people actually do want to pay money to someone to help them do painful and you know unpleasant exercise and I loved in that role learning how to create kind of memorable pleasant and engaging experiences for people so that they'd want to get engaged in health promoting activities so to speak that's kind of where I started and while I was training as a physio and I moved into cardiopulmonary rehabilitation as my first job so working with people with heart disease chronic heart failure and different types of lung diseases and it was all around chronic disease health, uh, self-management. So exercise and changing lifestyle um, to be able to manage their health problems better. So what keeps you busy now? Um, so I moved from working in, in community healthcare into more providing rehabilitation services for people living in the community. And I've moved into working in rehabilitation research. 
and um, research looking at individualised solutions to people getting healthcare in all different parts of the system. But I'm mostly interested in in the community and home-based settings. And I'm involved as well in a couple of different areas of involving consumers and people's lived experience in research and health technology assessment with the Health Technology Assessment Consumer Consultative Committee at the Department of Health. There's so many acronyms. Um, <laughs> and part of the Medical Services Advisory Committee. So I'm not kind of speaking on on behalf of any of those committees, but yeah, that's also what I'm doing. Yeah, nice. Firstly, before we get into the subject for this episode, for those that might have come across the term lived experience and, you know, we talk about patient advocacy a little bit on the, the podcast and at times and the importance of speaking with those with lived experience. Talk, talk to me a bit more about that and, and what it is and how we kind of work that into healthcare firstly. Yeah, so using the lived experience, speaking about lived experience, exactly as it sounds, it's talking about what somebody experiences day to day when they're living with a health condition or with an injury or some kind of illness. And it also talks about how that person interacts with the healthcare system or social support systems. It's not the same as talking about outcome measures or something like that. It's actually about what is it like? What are people's routines and priorities? And what is that like when you try and make an appointment, go to the doctor, talk to a healthcare provider, and then get involved in whatever activities are recommended after that? Yeah, got you. Got it. Okay. And so this episode, we're focusing particularly on improving accessibility in the disability space. And so when we're looking at disability in Australia, let's try and define it. What, what, what is it? Who does it include? And, and how many people are we talking about in Australia? Yeah. So there's actually, and I had no idea about this when I trained as a physiotherapist or was working in rehabilitation with people with disabilities, but one in six Australian people has a disability of some sort. So that's about 4.4 million people. We're not talking about a small group of people. Uh, And I think when we think about disability, maybe you could think, oh, well, lots of those people are older, I guess, because you acquire disabilities as you get older. But it's actually about one in eight people under 65 have some level of disability. And so when you're 65 or older, about half of people have a, a disability. And what we mean by that, it's not just a physical disability something impacts on how you move around through the world, but it's something that impacts on how you interact, whether it's a cognitive impairment that causes disability, so whether you're thinking processes or whether your mental health is causing basically any kind of impairment that means you have to do a whole lot of extra planning or you're not able to interact with the world, the same as someone who doesn't have a disability. So that sounds very vague, but really disability is a lot more broad than we think about. So it has lots of impacts when people are trying to interact with services, with technology, as well as the built environment that we usually would think about. Yeah, let's talk more about that, you know, the the impact it has on people trying to access healthcare. And we talk a bit about accessibility and healthcare generally, and we like to talk about inclusion and those in general terms. And sometimes we like to think we're doing a bang up job about it, depending on where you are. When it comes to disability, accessibility in healthcare, what's it really like? Maybe I'll get a little personal here um, because disability isn't one thing either. So if you you know a disabled person, you kind of know one disabled person, so to speak. And society in general, I think, values disability in a really reductive way. So, you know, if you see disability represented in the media, there's usually one or two ways it can be. In one way, you'll see a story of a hero who has overcome some great hurdle or, you know, a sporting hero, Paralympian, 
that's kind of one story or someone who's done something absolutely amazing as an inspirational story or disability is in the media as something that you would pity someone that they're going through great suffering and you then think oh well, someone with a disability doesn't have a great capacity and so what's disability like in healthcare well, I think healthcare is a space where we don't think about disabled people as part of workforce. We think about disabled people as people who will just need help to do stuff. So interacting with the, with the health system as a person with a disability, working within it or being a patient in it, things aren't made accessible. Thinking about then accessibility in healthcare, are we talking about, you know, people being able to access appointments or, you know, utilise services for ongoing treatment plans? Does it cover the, the, the whole kit and caboodle? Yeah, I mean, because disability is so diverse, there's certainly lots of different ways that it can be difficult to access things. But thinking about a person's lived experience, physically navigating a building where you might have to go for healthcare, can be difficult, obviously, if there's not ramps and things. But we think about even if you go to make a health appointment on a telephone or online, if it's really difficult to interact with that system in the first place, and then you can't find out basic information about whether there will be a ramp or whether there will be a long wait in somewhere where there's no air conditioning, say, or whether there'll be a Auslan interpreter available, how you would book it. It's just a lot more complex for people who have extra disability access needs to access things. And there's not really an invitation for people to share what their needs are either. So there's kind of this expectation that if someone has a disability, the onus is on them to come with a support person or go through an onerous process of asking lots of questions about, will I actually even be able to access that appointment when I get there? Mm. Or, you know, who will I even be able to ask whether or not there's going to be an accessible bathroom when I arrive? Mm. Things like that, that people without disabilities wouldn't even have to think about all goes in before you can even worry about just having a normal healthcare interaction. Yeah. So from, from a business's perspective, like say business owners, like a more traditional way to think about ensuring compliance with accessibility from a disability side of things is, you know, there's audits and they get a tape measure out and make sure that a wheelchair would fit on this ramp and, hey, tick, we're accessible for someone with a disability. But when you talk about the quite specific needs that people might have or there's, there's such diversity in terms of the types of disability that people would have, that's, that's really hard to put, you know, I guess some controls around or at least some instructions. And, and that feels like very hyper-personalized and very difficult to do at scale. Like, I guess this is something that you think about and tackle often. Yeah, I think you're spot on there when you're saying there's lots of individualization that would need to happen to have an accessible healthcare system. Because mm. I think we throw around those words really cheaply mm. and we'll say, oh, this building's fully accessible. Yes. But what does that mean? Because everybody's access needs are quite different. I feel like if I can use an example, I work in stroke rehabilitation research. And so if we're going to design clinical trials that contain interventions or treatments that people are going to have to access, whether it's online treatments or in-person treatments, then it's up to all of us to think about what are the access needs of all of the users of the service or all of the people who might be involved in the trial. And then there's going to be a range of things that likely people with stroke might have as relevant disabilities. So health services normally for someone with a communication impairment like aphasia after stroke, so that's where someone isn't able to read complex information really quickly necessarily or needs assistance with communication. Traditionally, we send people really complicated letters or we'll have a phone call that happens quickly. There's no provision to have a person helping you with 
your communication or anything like that. So it's just very complicated from the start and there's complex forms. You could say, oh, our service is accessible because there's a wheelchair ramp. But if the communication needs of people with aphasia aren't being accommodated within your service, then your service isn't accessible to people with aphasia. So I think in healthcare, we should be really well-skilled and well-placed to make services that suit people's needs, but we're just not thinking about what they are. Mm, Interesting. And so then when we start to think about ways to do this in a scalable way or in a consistent way, I guess that's when technology starts to come into the picture. What do you think the role is of technology and digital health when it comes to accessibility and inclusion for people with a disability? Yeah. I mean, there's a couple, look, there's there's many roles for it, but in the first instance, we've got really good data on who is and who isn't using our services. And I think we really could use that a lot more than we are. So that's, that's one thing is just actually using the data that we have to decide who else we need to invite into the conversation, who else we need to invite into the design of more accessible systems. But the other thing that I guess what I want to say is that with digital health, we're talking about information, communication technology, and then we're talking about what tools can we use and how can we um, create new processes in like that enabled by technology. One of the low hanging fruit things is just before we even get into the nitty gritty of can someone who needs an interpreter access this or um, can somebody who has short term memory impairments because of a disability that they have actually remember what all the steps are in this complicated process that just exists. Because we know we don't have a healthcare system that was cleverly designed one day. It's just a mishmash of lots of things that have been added on and lots of different activities people have to do that all kind of bolt together. But before we even get to that, any system that makes things more convenient and helps the flow of information sensibly move from one place to another makes it much easier for someone already dealing with lots of levels of different disability-related things that they've got going on. Things like more convenient systems that give you a choice about when an appointment time is can be something that really helps with accessibility. So I work in stroke rehabilitation at different time points after people's stroke injury. And for example, fatigue is a really big problem for people. When people with a brain injury are experiencing this neuro fatigue, it doesn't matter how well they were able to go through a, a complicated letter, for example, when they weren't feeling fatigued, if the clinic is run in the afternoon, just after lunch, they've had to go into a car park, drive around for 20 minutes, find a park, deal with the the payment thingy where you might get a risk, you know, all the stuff that normally is just a bit annoying, all the pain points for anyone accessing a health service. Once you've gone through all of those things, by the time you then access something that's at a time when everybody knows that a lot of people experience fatigue, Mm. it's going to be worse. Mm. And so people might have forgotten something or other and the whole process is just more stressful. Anything that makes the process more convenient and moves information more quickly, it impacts on people with disabilities in a a much bigger way. Mm. People who need to use the system really frequently. Yeah, that, like, and, and we've talked a bit on the show in the past, and we, and when generally those operating the space talk about the need for co-design, working with patients or clinicians or different stakeholders through the journey in in getting that feedback, understanding what's needed in designing these things. You've touched on a little bit there, but just to go a little bit more into. For those that are creating digital health solutions or digitally enabled models of care, so not just the technology, just delivering care with technology, how would you go about designing some more meaningful and helpful interactions with healthcare? Yeah. 
Well, the first thing is to make sure that you're solving a problem that's likely to have a significant impact. And so I think particularly dealing with people trying to design something that's going to assist someone with disabilities or be accessible to someone with disabilities, you have to understand what their normal routines are. And so disability also is just a kind of a normal part of the human existence. Remember, so many people have a disability. So you're not going to design something that works for lots of people if you've only included a patient user or someone with a lived experience who is in contact with the healthcare system a couple of times a year Mm. or who isn't dealing with several different layers of access needs when they're trying to access it because you can't understand the priorities of routines or what a person's even been through all the different steps to organizing their day before they interact with the health service. So the best way to start is to include people who are living with the health condition that is relevant to the service that you're working on or that's that the harder to reach users or the users of your health service who you think you're not connecting with. They're the type of people to try and engage in the design process from the outset. Mm. I have a silly question then. How do you find these people? If you're creating a solution for people in a particular subset, how do you go about finding more? Because normally what I found, it might just be the founder or somebody within the organization has experienced it themselves, but that's just from their own perspective. sounds like getting that broader view is, is really important. I think it's both, it's a really good question. And I don't want to be abrasive here because it's also a really ridiculous question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. these people move among us. But yeah, I wanted to share what I know about how to find people to work with and then how to select good talent within these groups of people who have kind of the relevant lived experience that you need and or disabilities. And the first thing that you can do is define exactly what you think the role of someone with lived experience in your team needs to be and make sure that you have budget for this involvement before you look for people. Because just like you would if you're looking to hire a consultant or a subject matter expert for any other aspect of the project, You definitely need to know and say up front if there is no budget for it and then not to expect much because people who live with, you know, chronic health conditions, disabilities, we're not just sitting around waiting for your call, even though we really want to help. And we need to have budget to make sure that we can get involved in a, you know, really useful way. And the biggest thing to give you the biggest bang for your buck for everyone working in the health tech industry is first to see how many people you actually work with who have relevant lived experience or disabilities. And if you don't know, at least when you're going to hire people, add in that you would encourage people with disabilities to apply. Add in that you want to talk to people about what their access needs are because you're going to get a great bang for your buck if you're hiring in people with skills who might do a different role in the project but are also happy to share lived experience. And that's going to have lots of value for whatever you're doing in the long run anyway. We know diversity is really good for teams. So firstly, see whether or not you already have people or you can actually hire someone as a a member of your team or decide, do you need a consultant? Do you need to get some researchers to help you actually run something a bit more formal to get people's lived experience? Depends on what you're doing, right? But know exactly what you need and then have a budget for it. Then you can decide whether you're going to advertise or if you're going to go, and this is, I think, the other thing where people think, where can I find people? If they're a clinician, like, should I ask my patients? Well, maybe, but if you're doing a formal research project, no, you can't just go and ask all your patients without an ethics approval. But yeah, if you think, okay, well, I know some people or I might approach a peak body like Health Consumers New South Wales, or I've talked to people in the Physical Disability Council of New South Wales, I work in stroke research. So depending on what health condition you're designing around, you'll know there's different peak bodies. If you're going to go and ask them if they know people, you need to go forward with 
this is the role that I have. This is what I need. I think I want someone to help me with some user testing or actually, no, I want somebody in the room who has some, you know, whatever tech experience or some clinical experience who maybe also has that health condition. Or all I need to know actually is I've realised that this application isn't going to work with including an Auslan interpreter, for example. Uh, so then you could approach one of the peak bodies that supports and includes deaf people and then also, make sure you ask, do you need to budget in an Auslan interpreter mm. to come while you're working with that person? And then just, yeah, just get specific. Then when yeah. you go out to look, if you need to advertise, if you need to approach people, then it's just much easier to be really specific about what it is you need. Then you can select talent in the same way that you would for any other person working on your team. So not just any person living with the condition, someone who you think has the skills and the approach that's going to fit nicely into your team and that you then can work with like in anyone else. Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because as you're saying that, that's super helpful and some great examples of places to go. And But then near the end there, it kind of comes down to solving a lot of problems in life generally, which is being really clear on your expectations and what your requirements are. And I guess it's an area that's super important that, that if you have specific requirements or um, expectations, then you make those clear in the, in the outset to avoid disappointment or misalignment of expectations down the line. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're working with people who have disabilities or access needs or need flexible work approaches because of illnesses already, you just become more aware of what needs people have, how to ask about them, and you can kind of get over some of your biases about, or oh, it's just going to be really hard to work with people who can't jump in and do things the way we've always done them. Like mm. now's, now's the time to to start to look to do this better because everybody's had to work remotely and everyone's had to do things differently and just be adaptable. So moving forward, I think we are all much better at just asking, okay, what do you need to make this working relationship good? What resources do you need to, to get involved and, yeah, do a good job? And I think some people can feel like, it's not okay to ask those specific questions or feel awkward about asking questions about what specific requirements someone with a disability might have because they don't want to feel like they're treating them any differently or they're providing an equal place to work. But to do that, you, you need to be really clear and understanding what the requirements are and what you need to do. Yeah, and I'm glad you've brought that up because it's really important to know how to ask in a respectful way, but without yeah, you want to get over that icky kind of feeling of, oh, I shouldn't ask anything. You just need to know what's relevant. So it's not appropriate if you don't know someone at all, if they're new to your team or if you're approaching someone from someone that's applied to put in an expression of interest for a position, you don't need to ask them why they use a wheelchair if that's nothing to do with what's going on. You just need to say, yeah, great, you've got the lived experience that I need to work with me on this cancer service, whatever it is you're doing, or a tech solution for something. You've said you're a wheelchair user. For you, if we have meetings in buildings, do you need, is it a power wheelchair? Like, what do you actually need to make sure you can get into spaces? Or, like, tell, tell me what you need, and then we'll see if we can make that work. And sometimes you won't be able to make it work. And that, you know, that sucks. And if you don't ask the questions, though, then you might run into the situation where somebody is invited into a team and then repeatedly you're not meeting their access needs. And then either it's uncomfortable and everyone doesn't do a good job or that's where you end up discriminating against people, even accidentally. If you ask the questions up front, then you're going to know whether or not it's feasible. And just touching on something you, you mentioned, which was people with a disability in healthcare 
can obviously be patients, but also the healthcare workers as well. So I guess a lot of what you've said there too is just as, like we've often, you know, the thinking around accessibility in healthcare is for patients and rightfully so, but there's also from the the large population of people with a disability in Australia, like you say, many are working within healthcare settings and trying to kind of navigate that as well. So it sounds like some of those points that you mentioned there are similar for the healthcare providers as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talk about inclusion and access and particularly around conversations around inclusion we're getting much better at thinking about gender and things like sexuality how do you create spaces that are safe for people to you know just work without being discriminated against Mm. or psychologically safe workspaces but for people who acquire disabilities or people who are working with disabilities or get sick our focus as a society has been around well do some healthcare and then you'll get better. Mm. And then once you get better, then you can come back to work. Once you get better, you can rejoin society. But just like we're losing women predominantly because they're in primary caring roles, this is how society is now. It needs to change, but how society is now, women tend to, you know, end up working in part-time roles and are lost from tech workforce, from, from being in management positions in healthcare. But we're losing people who have disabilities and chronic illnesses because our workflows aren't flexible and because it's not really yet socially acceptable to speak up and say what your access needs are. I know my personal experience was, you know, I was first diagnosed with chronic health problems when I was just at the very start of my physio career. But at that time, I could kind of explain them all away in terms of sporting injuries and things. So that was a bit cool to talk about. And that wasn't seen as less than I I could just actually get by anyway without asking for any accommodations. But as things progressed, trying to find language to say what my needs were without people thinking that then I wasn't competent in my job anymore, that got really tricky. And I think we need to encourage people to speak up and say what their needs are and work out the same as we're doing for remote working and we're doing for parents. There's small adjustments that can be made so that people can work productively and we don't have these massive skills, you know, a massive departure of skills as people do, as they will, acquire disabilities and, and illnesses along the way. Yeah, no, that's that's so helpful. And, and lastly then, um, can you provide any advice for those with a disability looking to forge their own career journey or unique path? Yeah. So firstly, not every person with a disability will want to identify as part of a disability community or disclose their personal health information even at work or publicly, which is valid. But absolutely no one should have to be ashamed of it or or feel like disclosing that makes them less than or less competent or capable. And I think it's important to use really specific language about what your access needs are, but that it's everybody's responsibility to create an environment at work where you feel safe and you are supported. Like there's discrimination laws in Australia that are necessary from an operational daily level it's not possible to stand up and say you've discriminated against me. That's that's not a, it's not an easy conversation to have and it doesn't mean things will just change. But my advice is to seek out other people like you and if you feel like you can without making things really difficult for yourself or uncomfortable, do be a little bit honest about what your needs are. But it's nobody else's business to know exactly why you're a wheelchair user or exactly why you need flexible work hours to manage your pain. Talk about that if you want to. And I guess, yeah, I've started talking publicly about my experience um, anytime it feels relevant because I'm in a position where I can and that's not going to disadvantage me in my career now. And I want other people to be able to see that it's perfectly feasible to be successful whilst, you know, 
chronically ill and that those two things, yeah, you don't have to wait for one to end before the next thing can start. That's so good. No, Gillian, I've loved this conversation. I really appreciate you sharing that and providing some great insights and we'll put some details in the show notes of this episode for people to check out if they wanted to look up from some more information. We'll have some links there as well. I really appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. Check out talkinghealthtech.com to connect with other people in our community and to learn more about the Australian health tech industry. Also, make sure you hit subscribe on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode and share this episode with a few people who need to hear it. Now go make it happen.